Have you ever wondered what goes into a low-budget film? The people involved, the cast, crew, director, and all the rest? It's not as magical as you might have been led to believe. Have you ever heard the story of Nick Rev, the intense and hopeful independent director? He made a film back in the 90s, and the process was anything but magical. If you've never heard of Nick, that's okay. He's a fictional character. Nick's story is the story told in the film Living in Oblivion, based on writer-director Tom DeCillo's real-life experiences. It's a low-budget movie that tells the story of the making of a low-budget movie. And that film is the topic of today's discussion. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to the 44th episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. I'm your host, Jeff Kelly, and here I like to go beyond the thumbs up or thumbs down star rating systems of most film podcasts. I like to look into who made the film, why they made it, and what others think of it. All that nonsense. Now every once in a while, I talk about one of my favorite films, and today I'm going to talk about one of them, the 1995 film Living in Oblivion. Oh, and one thing, before we get started, I just wanted to warn you that there will be some swearing in today's show. I usually try to keep celluloid days family-friendly, but I'm using some sound clips from the movie, and, um, well, let's just say the F word is used quite often, and I'm too lazy to censor them. So I just wanted to warn you in advance in case you have a problem with um, bad language. Anyway, let's get going. Living in Oblivion is a low-budget black-and-white and and color film that stars Steve Buscemi, Catherine Keener, Dermot Mulroney, and in his first film, Peter Dinklage. It's a wonderfully funny film based on the actual experiences of writer-director Tom DeCillo. Tom's other films include Box of Midnight from 1996, Delirious from 2006, and When You're Strange, the fantastic 2009 documentary about Jim Morrison and the Doors. Now, if you haven't seen Living in Oblivion, I would advise watching it first, as there's going to be some spoilers, but I'm also going to try to keep those spoilers to a minimum. The film is basically three stories, sort of. I mean, the three stories are connected, and it has a good payoff at the end. At least, I think so. Now, there's an interesting story behind this film. Writer-director Tom DeCillo studied filmmaking at New York University's film school before becoming a cinematographer for Jim Jarmusch. Soon he was making his own low-budget film, a 1991 movie called Johnny Suede. The film starred Brad Pitt in one of his earliest film roles. The film took him almost four frustrating years to get made. But when it was done, he entered it in the Licardo International Film Festival in Switzerland, and it won Best Picture. A man named Mark Tusk from Merrimack saw it and convinced Harvey Weinstein to purchase the rights. He did so because he figured Brad Pitt was going to be a major star. Now, one can only guess that this must have been a dream come true for Tom. 
I mean, his passion project was picked up by a major studio and all that. But that's where the dream ended. Johnny Swade ended up playing in one theater for about a week. It reportedly grossed about $90,000 against a budget of $500,000, and it was quickly pulled. Now, you have to remember, and this is for you younger kids out there, there was a day when there was little to none home video and no streaming. You see, kids, back in the day, for most films, once it left the theater, it was gone forever. I mean, if the film had a huge success, it might play on TV once in a while. Tom's film wasn't a success, and this sent Tom into a deep depression. A film he worked so hard on for so long was gone in a week, probably never to be seen again. Because of that, he lost the funding for his next film, Box of Moonlight. He later said, I hated the business. I hated everything about it. I didn't want to talk to actors. Now, sometime later, he was at a wedding when someone came up to him, a man he had been in an acting class with years earlier. The man said, You're so lucky, Tom. You made a movie. You know, lights, camera, action, all that. By now, Tom had finished his third martini and said, Listen, let me tell you something about making a movie. Tom was a bit drunk and went off, telling the poor guy about all the frustrations he had while making the film, all the problems a director deals with trying to get a film made. The man at the wedding who had to listen to Tom's rant plays the man with the clapboard in Living in Oblivion. Scene six, take two. But it was because of this conversation that he came up with the idea about the making of a low-budget short. He wrote the script and gave it to his friend, Catherine Kinnear, and she loved it. Kinnear at the time was still a struggling actress. She had been in the film Johnny Suede and had done a lot of TV work like playing a waitress on L.A. Law and a role in an episode of Seinfeld. And occasionally she got the small film role, more often than not uncredited. Now at the time, she was married to the actor Dermot Mulroney. Mulroney was also just getting his acting career off the ground, and he offered to put up $5,000 for the short as long as he could play the director. Tom said no, but he could play Wolf, the cinematographer. Mulroney, to his credit, had an idea for the director, and that was Steve Buscemi. Buscemi was a friend of Tom's, as Tom used to come and see his shows he was doing in the East Village. Steve accepted the role without ever reading the script. He said, well, it was only five days' work, and he liked all the people involved, so why not? Besides, Musemi had also directed a short film called What Happened to Pete, so he did have experience as an independent film director. Money was raised by DeCillo's wife by offering any actor they knew a part as long as they put up some money, and they were able to raise $37,000. The man holding the boom mic in the film? Well, that's his wife's trainer who contributed, and he's wonderful in the movie. Yo, I asked for a frame line. Okay, can we get a frame line, please? Now, one of my favorite stories is, well, at the end of the short film, which became the first part of the feature, Steve Buscemi, as director Nick Rev, goes crazy because of a beeping sound that no one can locate. He goes off on the cast, insulting them, swearing at them, just, just going crazy. 
Now, apparently, DiCillo wanted realistic reactions from the people playing the crew and the actors, so he asked Buscemi just to improvise anything he could think of behind the camera to get them to react. Buscemi did a great job with his insults that, after it was over, DiCillo turned the camera around and told him to repeat his rant a second time. The rant was used in the film. Can somebody help me, please? Huh? Do I have to do everything myself here? Ah, Cora, why don't you go learn your lines, Cora? Hey, script! How about paying attention a little bit there, okay? Hey, hey, focus puller, I got some good tie stick. You wanna go fucking smoke one or you wanna pay attention here? What are you laughing at, wolf? You fucking pretentious beret-wearing motherfucker. Hey, I saw your real man, it sucked. Fuck would hire you anyway. Hey, Bob! Hey, Bob! Can you make a little noise on the fucking dolly? Huh? You creaky motherfucker! Wanda! Next time, can you wear a shirt that's a little bit more distracting to my actors? What is your name, anyway? What do you fucking do around here? Hey, Speedo, you can't find a little fucking beat? Huh? You see what I fucking have to deal with here, Nicole? Maybe do some of that magic on camera? No, no, wait till fucking Wolf is puking his guts out. Oh, now I'll be good. Anyway, when the five days were up and the film was in the can, as they say, the cast was having so much fun they begged DiCillo to expand the 30-minute short into a feature. And Tom later realized that there's nothing you can do with a 30-minute film. It's too long to be considered a short and too short to be a feature. So he began to raise the money to film another hour. Now time, as you can imagine, was of the essence because eventually the actors would have to take other jobs. I mean, they were struggling actors. Buscemi, who had long hair in the original short, knew that eventually he would have to cut it off if he was going to get other acting jobs. Months went by with no luck when eventually DiCillo received a call from a man who had the dreams of being a producer, and he said he was willing to put up $300,000 if he could be the producer on the film. DiCillo really had no interest in signing a deal with the man, but what was he going to do? And then, while he was still on the phone talking to the man, not knowing what to do, his call waiting went off. Now, for you kids out there, back when we had landlines, if you were on your phone and somebody else called you, you would hear a noise on your phone letting you know there's somebody else waiting, and you could quickly click over to the other person on the line. Sort of like putting the first person on hold. Anyway... He put the producer on hold to take the call. It was from Michael Griffith. He played the sound mixer Speedo in the short film. He was married to Hilary Guilford, his wife's cousin, who played the beautiful script girl in the short. Speedo said that they had just inherited a large amount of money and asked if Tom would be offended if they offered to finance the film. Tom said, of course, he wouldn't be offended, and he was happy to refuse the offer from the would-be director on the phone. So he was able to get the cast back together and film another hour. Now, if you look on YouTube for Living in Oblivion and Tom DiCillo, you will find many videos of Tom telling this very same story. Every time he talks about living in oblivion, he tells the story in one version or another, and he probably tells it better than I, so. Now, like I said, this film is really three shorts. The first part is the director trying to film a very emotional scene between a mother, played by Rika Martins, and her daughter, played by Katherine Keener. 
right, well, here's what I want to do. I want to get the whole scene in one shot. It's been done. I know, but let's try it anyway. Handheld? No, Dolly, we go from close-up, pull back to a wide shot, back to a close-up. I'll use the 35, it'll minimize the distortion, and we can light the whole thing from the ceiling. It actually could be kind of great. It sounds incredible. How long, Wolf? Uh, I got to see a couple run-throughs. When they do the first take, it's done really well, but a boom mic drifts into the frame. And each time they try, something seems to go wrong. And each time, the acting level drops a little. Buscemi gets really frustrated, and he tells the actors to chill a minute and just... Run through your lines. They're not even going to film it. Just run through your lines. And suddenly, while the camera's not rolling, the actors do it perfect. So much so that the crew around them are almost in tears. The second part happens when a well-known B actor who has a giant ego is hired to play the love interest to Kinnear. And that leads to all types of issues, including an eye patch. Chad, what are you doing? Hey, that's my fucking iPad! Can I borrow it, Wolf? Nick, it just feels right. I got this guy now. No, Chad, it doesn't work. You're wrong, man. I'm gonna fight you on this one. And finally, in the third part, we have a dream sequence with an apple, Buscemi's mother, and the first film appearance by Peter Dinklage, who plays Tito, not Toto. This is uh, Nicole. She's, she's playing Ellen. Hi. Toto, is it? Tito. Oh, I'm sorry. And he asks the important question, why does my character have to be a dwarf? Now, this is the point of the show where I usually cut to Nancy or Russell and hear what they have to say. This week, both were busy. So instead, why don't we just listen to part of the trailer to Living in Oblivion? Lock it up. Okay, here we go. And roll sound. B. Nick Rev is making a movie. Action. He's wonderful, isn't he? It's something most of us only dream of doing. How'd you get into cinematography? No, I'm, I'm directing this movie. How'd you get into directing? But for Nick... Hey, Bob! Hey, Bob! Rolling! The dream... Cut! Do I have to do everything myself here? ...is becoming a nightmare. What is your name, anyway? Ah! Living in Oblivion. The new film by Tom DiCillo. You know, the only reason I took a part in this movie is because someone said that you were tight with Quentin Tarantino. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, in the first part, is the scene I was talking about earlier when the two actors finally do the emotional scene perfect while the camera isn't running. Now, it's too bad this is an audio podcast because the scene really shows what a fantastic actor Steve Buscemi is. All at once, you can see in his face the joys of seeing his emotional scene done to perfection, as well as the anger and frustration of knowing that it isn't being filmed. And Buscemi is just wonderful as a director who's on his way to a nervous breakdown. Sometimes I wonder what the hell I'm doing in this business. It's all just one compromise and disappointment after another. I don't know if I have the personality for it. Sounds kind of like an identity crisis. <laughs> and maybe you're right. Who am I? What am I capable of? Maybe I should find a job teaching Spanish at a women's college somewhere. Tom DeCillo said of indie directors, most people think of independent directors as these cool people. 
But it's never the case, never. They're always one inch away from complete hysteria, no matter how much control you have. Katherine Keener, whose career hadn't taken off yet, is both beautiful and fantastic. She plays the star of the film that's being made within the film, and I can't say enough good things about her. I mean, she's been in so many great films ever since. Do you know Nicole? No, I don't know his sign, but I think his moon is in Uranus. In the beginning, there's a scene in which Melroni, as cinematographer Wolf, asks Buscemi to look through the camera just to see how great she looks. Nick, you gotta take a look at this. Push down the foot. She's incredible. She's coming right through the lens. That's beautiful, man. That's great. And I agree, she's just gorgeous. Dermot Mulroney plays the eye-patch-wearing cameraman, cinematographer Wolf, who's having his own issues. You're not worried about the time? I'm not worried about the time. Oh, I am very worried about the time. Oh, I know you are. What, what is that supposed to mean? What do you think it means? I don't know what it means. Yes, do no, no, I don't. don't. I haven't exactly done anything. I have done Wanda, nothing. Wanda, please, you Why have to understand. You, you don't understand me. I, you don't even care. I don't understand you. you. All I do is take care of me constantly. Hey, hey. In the film, he's dating the assistant director, Wanda, played by Danielle Van Zertnek. The problem is, she is the hots for Chad Palomino, the ego-driven actor who wants Wolf's eye patch. Chad is played by James LaGrosse. Chad is one of those actors who will do anything to make sure he's in the foreground right in front of the camera. Nick, I just had a great idea. Hold the roll. Hold the roll, nobody move. What is it, Chad? Just stop me if I'm out of line here. She says, admired from afar, so doesn't it make sense to see Damien up close, her afar? Now watch me. We start on a close-up of me. Right? She declares her love. She comes to me. She steps into this beautiful two-shot that you and the Wolfmeister have set up here. What do you think, Wolf? I don't like it. It's Ellen's scene. Apparently, I've read that he based his character on a real actor he knows, but would never tell anybody who that actor was. And I believe DiCillo has come out and said it is not based on Brad Pitt. And then there's Peter Dinklage in his first film credit. He plays Tito, the actor who's hired to play in a dream sequence. He said he didn't have to stretch too far into the character who is frustrated about being hired to play a little person in a dream. Is that the only way you can make this a dream? Put a dwarf in it? No, Tito. I... Have you ever had a dream with a dwarf in it? Do you know anyone who's had a dream with a dwarf in it. No! I don't even have dreams with dwarves in them. The only place I've seen dwarves in dreams is in stupid movies like this. So the film is basically one thing going wrong after another. Things like egos, forgotten lines, noise problems from the street, boom mics and frame, lights that pop, and all the rest. If you've ever worked on a scripted production, even if it's just a short, you'll recognize some of these issues. Some people call this a movie within a movie, but I really don't think so, since you never really know much about the film that's being made. It's more like a nightmare inside a movie, I guess. And I think it all works really well, and that's probably because DiCillo knows what he's talking about 
But does everyone agree with this old man about this film being fantastic? I think so, because the reviews are mostly positive, as it gets an 87% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Gina S. gave it 5 out of 5 stars, and she wrote, Unique, exciting seeing everything play out. Interesting setup, and I love the final scene. The final scene is actually what brought me to this movie. Nice. I agree, Gina. The ending is wonderful. Katrina R. also gave it five stars, and she wrote, A comedy about the day in the life of a director. Interesting to think about the egos, people, and how to work as a director when there are so many personalities trying to collaborate and make something as complicated as a film happen. Katrina, you got this movie. You understand it. But not everybody does understand it. While most people gave it four or five stars, some people, well, not so much. Jessica S. gave it two out of five stars, and she wrote, There are two lines I found funny. Otherwise, I'm at a complete loss as to why I wasted 90 minutes watching this movie. I've read other comments on this, and apparently the brilliance of this movie is completely lost on me because I thought it was rather dreadful. Dreadful, Jessica, really? That's a pretty harsh word. Maybe it needed a few explosions or people with magical powers fighting crime. I don't know. You are, of course, entitled to your opinion. Adam S. also gave it 2 out of 5 stars, and he wrote, Meh. I heard this was really a funny movie, so I watched it expecting that. No, a lot of yelling, monotonous scenes done over and over again. Ha ha, so gut-busting. And one funny scene with Dinklage at the end. Again, meh. Adam, the word meh, stop using it. It makes you sound like a fool. Can you get more sarcastic in your review? Come on now. Anyway, the music in this movie was done by a fellow named Jim Farmer. Jim has done most of the music for Tom DeCillo's films, as well as a few other films whose names I can't recognize. But really, I love the music in this film. It sets the tone perfectly. Now, one last thing. If you like this film, I would advise buying the Blu-ray. It has a commentary track by Tom DeCillo, and it's just wonderful. It's almost a masterclass in low-budget filmmaking. I'm serious. I've watched it more than once, and there's so much information there. It's your call, Nick. Is acting or his face? For some reason, I thought we can get both. I thought that's what we were trying to do here. And you've got to give DeCillo props in finding young talent. I mean, Brad Pitt and Johnny Swade, Steve Buscemi, Catherine Keener, Dermot Mulroney and Peter Dinklage in this film, and John Turturro and Sam Rockwell in another wonderful film, Box of Moonlight from 1996. One story I've heard DeCillo talk about is the bizarreness of having a fake film crew and a real film crew. I mean, there's scenes in the movie where the director, the assistant, the cameraman, the focus puller, the script girl are all crowded around a camera supposedly filming the action. But in reality, right in front of them is the exact same setup of people filming them. It's almost like a weird Twilight Zone thing. No. We're not going to shoot anything. 
I'm sorry. Thanks for all your help, but it's over. I can't take it anymore. I tried to roll with it, but it's time to face the music. I can't do this. Shoot is over. I give up. Take the camera off the doll and start putting it away. Now, if you haven't seen this movie, it's available for free in a few places. The Roku channel has it, Tubi and Peacock all have it for free. And I think it's on YouTube, but I'm not 100% sure about that. If you have any interest at all in low-budget filmmaking, check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. Unless your name is Adam and you say, meh. I know what you're going to hand me even before you open your mouths. You're going to tell me you don't believe my story and give me that don't make me laugh expression on your smug faces. Look, I'll tell you what, you stay put out there, I'll come to you. Let's get married right away. How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. So what else was it to do but hide the body and get away in the car? Even if you did tell the cops I was in on it with you, what could they do to me? Hey, you, this your car? By that time, I'd done just what the police would say I did, even if I didn't. Maybe it's a good thing you met me. You'd have got yourself caught, sure. Whichever way you turn, fate sticks out a foot to trip you. A little bit before I go, you can go on YouTube and find a ton of interviews with Steve Buscemi and Tom DeCillo about the making of Living in Oblivion. And I did check, and right now the film itself is on YouTube if you want to watch it. Me, I'm a sucker for any film that shows the behind-the-scenes action of the making of film, especially a low-budget movie. I've directed a few shorts, and I can relate to a lot of the problems I see here. Anyway... Next week on the show, we're going to do the 1945 American film noir, Detour, starring Tom Neal, Anne Savage, and Claudia Drake. It's a great little film, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. And whether or not Nancy or Russell joins me, it depends on their schedule. Anyway, listen up. I have a Facebook page. You can join. It's just called Celluloid Days. I have a Twitter account. It's at celluloid underscore days. I'm up to 42 followers, so wow. And you know, I'm always looking for film suggestions. And you can email me those suggestions at daysofcelluloid, all one word, dot gmail.com. Hey, you can even email me just to say hi, all right? And if you could do me a favor, tell your friends about the show, right? I'm trying to build an audience here. <laughs> anyway, leave me a review at wherever you stream this podcast, and I'll be forever grateful. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next Monday with, a, I'm sure, an exciting show. Take care. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. 
Can you play the piano? I 